We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 76. As many of us are aware, top show jumper and Irish Olympian Kevin Babington suffered a severe spinal cord injury at the Hampton Classic Horse Show last August of 2019. Kevin's right hand in every area of his life, his wife, Diana Babington, is our guest today, and I am so thankful that she is taking the time to talk to us today and walk me through what happened that day and how it's looking for both Kevin and the rest of their family and their business going forward. So here to talk to us today is Diana Babington. Thank you so much for taking the time. I would love to hear, There's, I have so many questions for you, but would love to hear you first got into the equestrian world. Okay. So um, neither Kevin or I actually were born into equestrian families, funny enough. We oh, both wow. had horses in the background. Yeah. So like there's, like my daughter will not be able to say that, right? Like she was born <laughs> into an established equestrian family. But, totally. But we, we both had horses in our background. Kevin had a family farm in Kerry and he grew up in a town actually. And, and I actually grew up in a rural community, but my mom was the horse person. And, um, she rode as a child, my grandfather on her side, loved animals and loved horses and used to take her riding every week. And I used to love as a child, looking at the old photos of her, she was all dressed up and, you know, she'd be out on these horses riding. And I, Mm. I looked at that and thought that I want to be that person, you know, like your mom. And then, um, but she wasn't a horse person. She just rode. And then my sisters actually started riding at Four Seasons Farm in Reading, New Jersey with Gary Kunzman. And then I was younger and I, I took it up after them and I was the one that sort of stuck with it. And, um, that was like the best time of my life. I'd say as a child, I was a barn rat there. And I remember my my mom still has in her basement, a picture that I drew as a seven-year-old of a pony named Oliver in the barn that was owned by Harold Vogel. And I wrote, do not erase. She still has it from like the seventh. Yeah, she still has it. But but anyway, so, you know, I had horses on both sides of my family. My, my grandfather on my dad's side was a race trainer. So I definitely think it was in our, our, D, our DNA, both of us. Totally. And then, um, yeah. And then as, and then as I got older, I started to work in the industry. I rode it four seasons and my parents got divorced. So the horses sort of went by the wayside. Sure. And then I sort of found a way in the industry by, by working. You know, I worked for a guy named John Hamilton, took care of horses at his place and worked in a trotter and racing breeding farm called DI Farms in, in New Jersey. And wow. um, spent a short time at Overpeck Farm working there. And I rode a bunch of friends' horses. I just stayed in it mm-hmm. until I finally got my own horse um, when I broke up with somebody in college. And that, that horse actually led me to Kevin. Wow. Amazing. And then how did you and Kevin meet? So Kevin and I met at a horse show. Um, I was riding at the time. I actually worked for Nona Garson for a while too. Funny enough, originally I had ridden with him, with a Frick, Rick Francher, who was known as husband or ex-husband at the time, hmm. was the trainer at the place I was keeping my horse. And Kevin actually was training out of that barn and I never even met him. It was really weird. Wow. So he used to show up and he was training a girl that had special needs actually. 
And um, this was a place you could keep your horse and and people could come in. So I was training with Rick Francher. Kevin keep coming to the barn. It was like God was trying to put us together, you know? <laughs> yep. and, um, and I wound up going to a show with Rick and grooming for him and, you know, running horses to the ring. I was probably like 20, 21 years old. And um, Kevin was there riding horses for Frank Chapeau. And we had a mutual friend and she introduced us. Wow. And we realized that we, we lived an hour or actually we lived a mile we lived a mile from each other down the road. And no uh, way. yeah, we lived a mile away from each other in Nishanik and met him at a horse show. And he, his in was, he wanted, he asked me if I wanted to meet Jem Twist, who was at the at Shadow Farm <laughs> at the time. And then when I went over there to meet that horse, wink, wink, <laughs> and he asked me out. And, oh. and then, yeah, it was, it was all, all go from there. <laughs> so cute. I love it. And I mean, now, I mean, you guys have built such a great program. I mean, what, what kind of encompasses your entire company? As far as our training program? Yes. So I'd say that there's a real depth here because both of us, sort of worked our way up, you know, nothing was handed to either of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of, it it actually is a, it's a nice feeling to know that when somebody comes in and they don't have a lot of money and they want to take lessons and learn, you have the same respect for them and and you see them, you see yourself in them a little bit too. You have, you look at them and you don't say, well, this person isn't going to be my next big client. And this person isn't going to buy me a horse. You see that person as this is somebody else that has a love of the animal and you want to, invest in that person as much as you'd want to invest in somebody that maybe could, you know, buy, buy a young horse for your daughter. Or I think that Kevin and I bring to the table, never taking anything for granted, you know, and each person has a value in your business. And some of the people that maybe have less financial means have more talent or, you know, maybe they have something to contribute. So I think it gives our business an overall view of everybody counts. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and besides training, you have other avenues as well. Can you tell me a little bit about those? So Kevin started a mill. I, I call this his midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I think a brunette would have been a lot easier to handle. <laughs> <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh, I love it. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's been a lot of work. <laughs> 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 he started the mill at, at some point, uh, I think my daughter was in first grade and she's now just about to head to college. So it's wow. been a long process. And um, it's a real passion of his. And I'm now looking to that company to sort of be something that is really a part of him. I would like to leave to my daughters eventually, you know, or maybe sell it at some point and retire. But he really, really um, had a strong need to develop a feed and bedding for his horses. And it really, you know, I actually was there. So I hear Kevin talk about it sometimes, but my perspective is Carlin King at the time had a bad lung as he'd gotten pleurisy on one of his trips to Europe. Hmm. be very careful about the dust that he was around and like what, what bedding we put him on and the trailer rides and all that. So we wet his hay and, and the chop straw bedding is a dust free product that really sort of was developed with Carlin King in mind Wow. as uh, yeah. And as well as the feed products, you know, Kevin was always a vegetarian, pescatarian, actually. He was a vegetarian when I met him, changed to a pescatarian and really cared about his diet and, and what he was eating. And it occurred to him you know, I'm only half the team and I want to make sure that these mm-hmm. horses are also getting the best nutrition, best bangs for the buck. He didn't like the fact that a lot of feeds were processed and he really felt strongly about a forage feed product. So both of the main products in that business really were inspired by by Kevin's view on 
nutrition and also by his famous horse, Carlin King. Absolutely. Wow. That is so cool. And it's still, um, your sister is running the mill, correct? My sister is running the mill and it cracks me up because my sister is the farthest thing from a farmer. Like she, (laughs) she was living in Franklin Lakes when she took this over and she is a beautiful and, you know, educated and, you would never think of her living in a <laughs> at a mill in <laughs> Amber, Pennsylvania. I crack up sometimes, but she has done such an amazing job, and she has run circles around the men that we had running that business. And I love it. she is a tough businesswoman. You know, she is a tough negotiator when when she's buying supplies, and she has really taken every piece of opportunity that we've given her to to put that business in the best place going forward. And we're still trying to get it, you know, really off the ground. It's, it's gotten a nice hit from, from some of the, um, advertising we've done and Mm -hmm. and people have maybe didn't know about the product, had tried the products and really loved them. So the bedding has really been very successful recently. And I think once people try it, they realize how different it is and how absorbent a chop straw uh, product can be. But she's the one that really, yeah, she's the one that really, really got it off the ground. What is that like? I mean, for, for me personally, my husband has never sat on a horse to this day. I need to get him on one, but what is that like for you? Um, you know, like you were saying, having your partner be so invested in the sport, there's gotta be some benefits. There's gotta be some highs and there's also, there also must be some challenges with that too. Well, you know, they talk about, you know, football widows and, and all these women that sort Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, lose their husbands to a sport. And I felt like a lot of my adult life married to Kevin, I did lose him a little bit mm-hmm. to the sport, you know, and, but at the same time, it was a necessity. I mean, I really feel like athletes that, that function at a high level, um, they need, they need to focus on that to get where they need to be. And I saw that early, you know, and I thought, you know what, I can't be jealous that he's gone most of the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, and when, before we had kids and before I went to law school and all that, I, um, I was with him, you know, like I was on the road with him all the time and, right. and it was our life. And then as we got older and I realized, hmm, I don't know that I want to be in the barn like this for my whole life. Right. I sort of felt the need to find something for myself because the horses were a bigger part of him than they were of me really. Mm-hmm. And I felt a little bit overshadowed by that. And so he went off to, to Europe and to pursue the Olympics and I was in law school. So, you know, I think back to your original question, it, it was a weird thing to sort of be in a situation where the sport I think was bigger than I was in many ways, but, mm-hmm. but I never minded because it was really, it was a person that was um, really focused on what he wanted in his life. And there was room for me as well. And I found other things too. And we sort of shared it together and also grew separately and together at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super insightful. And it's something that, um, not a lot of people think about that dynamic, but especially, well, I hope, I hope I answered your question because yeah. I, you know, it's just sort of how I see it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. How did things change for you and your riding and your involvement in the barn once you had kids? Um, it was a hard, it was a hard go for me to honestly. Um, so what had happened was we were, we were, you know, chugging along and Kevin's career was building and, you know, I sort of felt unfulfilled in many ways because 
you know, when there's, a, there's only one person, like I was never the talent. I could just put that right out there. Like I never thought that I was going to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, that's the 1%. And Kevin is yeah super talented. And there are a lot of very good riders, but really like when you look at who sort of makes it, he had everything that it took. And so I recognized early, you know, I wasn't from a wealthy family. And so for me, it was somebody was going to be the main person. It was always going to be Kevin. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I believe that all the resources went to him and I sort of wrote as an amateur early on, but really, really understood everything about show jumping in the end and, and the industry and started to teach at some point after, after, um, I had gone to law school, I'm going to back it up a little bit. So yeah. the business, the business was in New Jersey. And at that point we had a, cl- a customer named Sally Glassman who really, really wanted Kevin to come to, um, Pennsylvania and we were New Jerseyites, you know, like we were there Yeah. and she built a facility and we bought a piece of property from her and built a house and we had our business running there. And, um, you know, Kevin was sort of pursuing the Olympics with a horse that she owned named Carlin King. And mm-hmm. so his life started to really take off in that direction. And I was getting a little older now, like I was in my thirties and I didn't see myself as a career groom because I just felt like, you know, I had been really good at school when Mm -hmm. I was younger. And I knew that it, it, you know, I didn't see myself tacking up his horses at the Olympics or, and I started to feel like pulled in a different direction. So what happened was I wound up going to law school and felt like I needed to have something to rely on a little bit in case he got injured, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. And in case something happened, you know, I felt like it was always good to have an education and right. have a different, something else that I could also still remain in the horses, but have something else. And I did practice for a while. So he went on and went to the Olympics and I started to work as an attorney. And then Gwyneth was born. And the funny thing is I tried forever to have kids before I went to law school and it never worked. Hmm. And as soon as I, as soon wow. as I started practicing law, I got pregnant. Of and course. It, like, I, you know, I'm looking up to heaven, like, what is this? Right. So yeah. and it's really hard. It's really hard to combine those two as a woman and it, it can be done, but it not without great sacrifice. And that mm-hmm. is just the truth. Yeah. And so I started practicing law. Kevin was off on his career and I, and Gwyneth was born 10 weeks premature. Wow. So what happened was after that, I realized that nobody was home and I had this premature baby. I was working six to seven days a week. Kevin was off at shows and I thought somebody has to give up their career or at least change their life because this kid is now being raised by, you know, caregivers and nannies and I'm making all this money as a lawyer and I'm not able to, not only not able to spend it, I didn't have time to ride. I had the best horse I ever owned at that time in my life, went on to do world cup classes Mm. and I didn't even know I had her because I didn't have five minutes to ride her. Yeah. And, um, Gwyneth was born and, and that was it. And I wound up, you know, trying to stay practicing law and had another baby two years later. And then I was out because I, I just couldn't manage the kids the barn at home riding a huge career, which I actually missed very much when I left. And what Mm. happened was once I left practicing law, I started to have nightmares because I felt like I wasn't contributing to anything. And it was really weird. I was having dreams that dreams that I was late for the office or late for court and things like that. Yeah. And not until I started teaching in the barn and contributing to the business did I start to feel calm and relaxed? And it was a natural, it was really unbelievable how it happened. I, 
I just started to help out. We lost a trainer. Uh-huh. Kevin said, can you teach some of these lessons? I'm leaving. And then it just, it, it just happened. And I wow. started to become the assistant trainer at that point. Okay. Wow. At that point, how much time had gone by between you working uh, pretty full time at the barn? So I had worked to the last minute. <laughs> I, was, I remember my car was. It does not surprise me. <laughs> Liz. So one of my best friends is Liz Arbiter, who's like mm. a prominent vet at New Bolton now, and I adore her greatly. And she is one of my five core people I'd say in my life hmm. that have been through things. And I don't talk to her that much, but she's still very important to me. And she was working for us at the time. She was, she was doing her pre-veterinary work and, and I had taken the LSATs. And I remember there was a, there was a horse show at Duncraven and it ended the day before I had to leave to go to law school. And I was grooming and taking horses to the ring. And, and I, had my car packed and I finished that day and drove up to law school still in my clothes from the horse show. Oh my gosh. And I remember saying to Kevin, I'll be back this weekend. And that did not happen. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. As soon as I got there, it was like, you have 600 pages to read for Tuesday, you know? And I I was like, wow, I guess I'm not going home for a while. So that was, that was my, um, my segue into law school. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I went right from the horse show. Wow. Yeah. So I was working full-time with Kevin and then went to law school and then that chapter of my life started. So it was, it was an interesting transition. It was, it was like being thrown into a pool of cold water actually. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. At that point um, of you starting to teach lessons again, how old were your kids? So I went to law school and then came out. I took two bars, passed the two bars and then um, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. And then I had been a summer associate at a firm called Fox Rothschild and um, and was hired right out of that summer associate program. So I really didn't skip a beat. And then practiced probably for about five years until I left. And um, I'd say it was probably about maybe a year before I started to teach and I was just a mom. And I just remember look, I love being a mom and I don't, I feel like it's, it's a full-time job. It is. And Mm -hmm. I'm not like, if you want to be a full-time mom and and you don't want to go to work, I'm all about that. And I think that's a great choice. But for me, like I, I had gotten one of the best jobs out of law school. Like I, I came out of law school making six figures and that Mm -hmm. doesn't happen too often. right? Right. I was older. So remember too, I brought a lot to the table as, as a first year associate, I was an older student, you know, I was in my thirties, right? New people, you know, had a, had a contact list that maybe, you know, a 24 year old doesn't have had right. life experience, had run a business. So I was kind of late. They looked at me as a good hire, I think originally. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think I was worth it coming out, you know, because I, I immediately did have some clients and things like that. But that year that I had where I was just at home with the kids and running to horse shows with Kevin and bringing them, it was fun. But I think there was something inside of me that felt like I had given up. Um, and this is just me. This isn't anybody else. This was just me. Felt like I had disappointed myself because I had spent all this money, you know, on a on a law degree and had done well in law school and had gotten mm-hmm. a great job out of law school. And I was trying, as a woman, I was trying to emotionally put together um, how do I reconcile 
the holes here. And I think this is something that a lot of women go through, you know, like they say, you can have it all, but you can have it all at at a price in many ways. This is my own opinion. So, you know, I hope you don't get any nasty comments or (laughs) this is, this was my, my experience. So I'm telling you the truth. I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't really have it all because I, I felt like I was practicing law, not to the best of my capability because my Mm. head wasn't, you know, I I was up at 11 o'clock still researching because I wanted to spend five minutes with the baby. And, and then I would walk in the barn. And I think probably the girls that worked for me at the time thought I was holy, a holy terror because, you know, I would come into the barn at nine o'clock at night after seeing the baby for two minutes Mm -hmm. and looking for my bridle, which had been carefully, you know, deconstructed because Kevin needed that bit for a training horse. So I'd walk in and I'd go to throw tack on my horse. My, my bridle was apart and I would like break into tears because yelling like, where's my bridle? You know, it's like nine o'clock at night and turning the lights on. So I, I realized at some point I couldn't have it all. At least I couldn't have it all at that moment in my life. And something Mm -hmm. had to give. And I did actually practice law from home for a while. I had a couple of cases and um, really loved it. Like loved the practice of law. Just couldn't, couldn't make the corporate, the corporate law firm fit into the lifestyle that I was sort of also part of. Yeah. Let's talk about recent life because obviously there have been a lot of uh, major changes and shifts, um, especially with Kevin's accident, um, late last year. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, as much as you, uh, feel like sharing, I mean, can you kind of take me back to that, um, that day, that time, how much you remember and what kind of was going on? So, yes. And I'll tell you the truth. I'll always tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, this was one of the first years that I did not go, to the Hampton Classic. And to be honest, both, my, this is very odd, but both my older daughter, Gwyneth and I had campaigned for him to go to Spruce Meadows because mm-hmm. he had been asked to jump on the team at Spruce Meadows. And Kevin being the horse person that he is, didn't think that the shore poor mare would hold up to the schedule at Spruce Meadows. Got it. Um, she had kind of had some soundness problems. She had been on and off and she was truly an amazing mare. And, um, you know, he was careful with her, you know, he didn't ever want to over jump her or overface mm-hmm. her. And, you know, she was still sort of building back a little bit. And I said, I really think you should go to Spruce Meadows. And he said, I can't go to Spruce Meadows because um, a client of ours at the time, Deborah Wyckoff had a horse that she was showing and he felt obligated to her um, to go to the Hamptons and, and coach her. And many years before we had had other clients that got, had gone, Megan Patterson, um, another kid that I was teaching, Ali McHale, they had done the Hamptons and, and I would go because Kevin would be, they were either my clients or shared clients and Kevin would be maybe busy in the meter forties and I would take somebody else to the ring. So mm-hmm. this particular year, we didn't have that. And I said, I really think you should just cut yourself loose and go to Spruce Meadows. I wish he had listened, but mm-hmm. so he went off to Spruce Meadows and the last time I saw him walking, I was laying in bed and he left early in the morning to head to the horse show. And I never forget seeing him breeze out. And I remember thinking, I wonder if I should go try to get up there. Hmm. And I didn't. And so it was um, a holiday weekend and my friend Jessica Reber had come and brought some stuff to barbecue. And I had stayed home specifically because Elizabeth, Kevin's head girl at the time, had gone with him to take care of the horse. And 
she and I shared a lot of the, the writing at home. You know, mm-hmm. when Kevin would be away with her, I would do most of the writing or I would do all of the writing actually on the training horses. And if I was away with Kevin somewhere, she would do all the writing. So there was a ton to ride and some teaching to be done. I stayed back. My friend came over. We were about to barbecue. And I get a phone call. Actually, I get a text from Brian Cash and it said, um, we are here if you need anything. Hmm. And I thought that was weird. I wasn't even watching the class because I was busy having my own life, you know, to to have my own job. And then I, my phone started to blow up and I was on the phone with somebody at the time when the phone started to blow up and I thought I better get off the phone. And then Elizabeth called me and she was out of breath and she sounded like she was running. And she said to me, you need to, um, get to, this hospital, she gave me an address. She said, Kevin had a fall and he's being medevaced. Hmm. And I said, medevaced. And she said, yeah. And I said, she said, he's breathing. And when, you know, I've never heard those words before in my life. Like normally people have a fall, they break their shoulder. She said, he's breathing on his own and he's being medevaced. And the first thing I said was, did she fall on him? And she said, um, no, no, she didn't fall on him, but you know, I'm going to text you. You have to get to the hospital. So I turned to Jess and I said, we have got to leave right now to go to Long Island. And thank God she was there because she drove and she pretty much drove the whole way on the whole way on the shoulder. I mean, we were going really, really fast and had flashes on and cutting in and out of holiday traffic. Mm -hmm. And, um, I started to get phone calls from people like Louis Sirio, who offered me a plane and from a customer of hers, I, three people called to offer to fly me from New Jersey to Long Island. Wow. And that is when I knew something terrible had happened. And I right. thought, I turned to Jess and I said, I think he's going to die. Mm-hmm. And she said, what, what, what? And I said, three people have offered me planes to fly how many miles? 200, you know, like probably right. 120, whatever it is. It's not far anyway from, yeah. from New Jersey to Long Island, right? And I said, too many people are trying to get me there fast. So I think something really terrible is happening. And Missy Clark called me and she had been on the field with John Brennan. And um, she was telling me, you know, kind of, she was cagey, you know, nobody told me he was paralyzed. Nobody yeah. wanted to tell me that. And yeah. um, she said, you know, he's breathing and he was talking, he asked for you. And I said, well, you know, and I never even thought to ask if he was paralyzed because it's so uncommon. If you have yet to hear about today's sponsor, I am so excited to introduce you. RiderZone is an online marketplace offering the best riding gear and accessories. The Equestrian Aid Foundation and Sam Shield America through RiderZone are joining efforts to support the equestrian industry during this difficult time. Sam Shield America will donate 20% of its sales each week to the Equestrian Aid Foundation Disaster Relief Fund to assist in their continued aid for our sport. You can participate and support this great cause by using the promo code EAFCOVID19. That's EAFCOVID19 on riderzone.com. That's R I D E R Z O N.com. Thanks so much, Rider Zone. Let's get back to the episode. Tell me a little bit about, um, obviously you weren't there. I'm sure that you have, you know, heard from, from everyone who was there to experience it and see it. What actually happened? I mean, was it a completely freak accident? What, what kind of happened to Kevin in that situation? 
I have an unpopular opinion about this, possibly, I guess you could call it, but um, I wasn't there, but I've heard enough from, from a lot of riders who walked the course and um, who sort of had some trepidation about the combination, how, how the, how the jumps were set coming into the combination. It was a little bit on a half stride coming to the combination mm-hmm. and that the, the out of um, from B to C was, was set way too short for, for the horses to be comfortable in there. And my opinion, based on what I've been told, and I have not seen the video, neither has Kevin actually, neither of us can bear to watch it because yeah. the description I've gotten from it sounds so awful. Mm-hmm. And what the doctors have said is that he hyperextended his neck. What I think happened at the scene, based on the information I've been given, is that the combination was set too short from B to C. And Vera Shoreport is a very, very careful horse. And a lot of horses had trouble there. You know, some did jump out, Mm -hmm. but more than your fair share, I'd say for what a course designer sets didn't get out or stopped or people had trouble. These are, these are seasoned riders. So when she jumped in, um, she, she landed and it was extremely short from B to C in the two stride. And at the time of day Kevin went, there was a shadow that was cast forward. Mm-hmm. And when he landed and assessed the distance, mm-hmm. I think the shadow that cast forward created a little bit of like an optical illusion for her. And she thought it was a ground line and yeah. picked up and never made it out and sort right. of got caught jumps. And Kevin said he had no way of helping himself. Like he said, when she, when she picked up, he thought, Oh shit. Right. And had no way to protect himself. Like she just sort of came down on, on C and I'll tell you something so scary. So he knew when he hit the ground, um, he was thinking roll. He said, I was thinking to myself roll because he, he didn't know where she was. Like he hit the ground and he said, and I realized at that moment, Oh my God, I can't roll. And he said that when people came out onto the field, the first thing he said to them was, do not touch me. Do not move me. Something is wrong. And um, he knew then that he was in serious trouble. And mm-hmm. part of the strange thing about it was when we were at the hospital, he kept saying that it, he kept feeling like his hands were still above his head and he was exhausted mm-hmm. because when hyper extended his neck, pretty much he did a somersault on his Adam's apple mm-hmm. and his came over his head. So, you know, when you're a kid, they teach you tuck and roll, right? Yep. Well, he didn't tuck and roll. He didn't have an opportunity to. And right. when he did, he basically, I think he flipped over on his neck and his, he had like the worst whiplash ever. Mm-hmm. The, the doctors described it to me as uncommon that a man of his age neck wouldn't have broken, like how he didn't get killed. Wow. Almost a miracle because he should have broken his neck. But instead of the neck actually breaking, he tore all the ligaments in his neck and, mm. and the bones didn't break. But he did have what's called a stretch injury of the spinal cord and a contusion of, of the spinal cord at C3 and C4. Now, for horse people, a contusion would be like a huge hematoma within the cord itself. Right. And what that does is so I thought, okay, great. When I got this news, it's a bruise, right? Me thinking, oh my God, it's a bruise. Yeah, that's not great news because mm-hmm. a bru- like Neil, Neil Shapiro, another top rider in his day, recently broke his neck and is fine because the bones broke, but nothing happened to the cord. Wow. In this 
situation, the bones did not break, but the cord got damaged because it's almost like the cord took a hit from the vertebrae, created this huge swelling and bruise within the cord. And what happens when that happens is the bruising itself, not only the stretch injury, but the bruising itself creates more damage in the cord. So the idea is that you want to get that swelling down as soon as you can, because the more it swells, the more damage it's creating, which is why I had sort of campaigned for him to get steroids on board in the ER, um, not in the ER, but actually, at, yeah, actually it was the ER, St- uh, to get steroids on board and to get his t- body temperature dropped down because I knew that um, that the swelling was, was, it was going to happen. There's nothing you can do to prevent it. You just try to tamp it down. Yeah. At what point did he transfer to a different location? So this is where I start to get amnesia because yeah. like, like, it, you know, I was sort of in shock, I think at the hospital while all this was going on and also trying to make decisions and, and reaching out to people who I trusted. Right. Um, I believe it was 48 hours because I didn't remember this until Jessica, um, told me we had spent the night at a local hotel, which I forgot all about. We, mm-hmm. you know, I kept thinking I was there the whole time at that point. I really feel like I didn't. I didn't know, you know, I have to tell you something. So I don't know whether it's just your body's, because I consider myself a pretty smart person. And, but this was like, you know, uncharted territory for me. I'm not a doctor. I've never dealt with anything like this. I've never seen somebody go to the hospital other than with a disease and not come Mm -hmm. out, you know, like, like, you know, I've never seen somebody have this kind of an injury. So I don't, I don't know whether my mind was sort of just taking it in, in as much as I could swallow at a time or whether I just didn't know. But the first time that I got home after that day was over a month later. Hmm. And when I got home, there were two checks in the mail other than some other small checks, hmm. two checks for $10,000 each. And it was at that moment that I thought these people know a lot more than I do. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because I thought, why are people sending me this money, like what, you know, I thought, okay, I have health insurance and everything. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, it's because people who have lived through things like this knew what I was going to be up against. And, and two families who I will, like, they will always be actually my mind and have reached out to me since. And one family was, you know, instrumental in helping me, you know, down here, they, I just got these checks and I I thought, why are people sending me this money? And it was Mm -hmm. because they knew they knew that the storm was coming wow. and I didn't know that. And, um, you know, for me, I just was trying to get through every day, you know, right? I was trying to just manage the kids and get through everything. And, um, it, uh, the finances of it didn't even, it didn't even occur to me, right. but everything stopped, you know, like everything, mm-hmm. the lessons, the horse shows, the horse sales, everything stopped including his life as we knew it. So, you know, it was a lot. And so when you say like, when did I become aware of what he was dealing with? I think I'm becoming aware every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think I ever knew at that point when he was at NYU until I started talking to the neurologist who, who gave him um, no chance, you know, like they, They basically, it was, I just called the one doctor, the Grim Reaper, and I actually asked mm-hmm. for her to not talk to me anymore because, you know, they don't know. The truth of it is, I mean, I've talked to a lot of neurologists who say, 
he could walk, you know, you don't know there, you know, he has a contusion of the spinal cord and you don't know where he's going to wind up. So for me, you know, to see him there, you know, and not know, I still don't know what the outcome is going to be was a lot. And, um, you know, we just do the best that we can every day. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's a good point. Hearing, you know, definitive answers about something that could very well not be the outcome must've just been the very last thing you wanted to hear. All these people were coming to me with stories about spinal cord injuries. And mm-hmm. one of my, one of our clients in in Long Island told me about a friend of hers that had a diving accident and they gave him no chance. And, and he broke his neck. Kevin didn't even break his neck. You know, mm-hmm. they, he broke his neck and, and they told him he'd never walk again. And, and he's actually a hundred percent. So, you know, for me, I was holding on to those stories because it just proved to me that they don't know. Do I think they're a hundred percent wrong? Of course I don't, you know, like mm-hmm. I see we're eight months in and, you know, we're, we're, we're gaining ground, but it's not like he's going to go out Irish dancing anytime soon. So right. I had to, I have to just look at it as, a, as, you know, inch by inch, hour by hour and where mm-hmm. he winds up only, only he will know. And we're, we're trying to put him in the best possible position we can for recovery. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, trying to get physical therapy and, you know, we've had a lot of support that some people will never have. And for that, I will be eternally grateful. It's yeah. a travesty that people that have these injuries are not important enough to the healthcare system because they're not, they're not common enough. You know, there's, right. there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of people with this, so it doesn't get a lot of attention. And so, you know, you're sort of just put in a corner and without this, the financial support of of a lot of the people that have stepped up to help him, I just don't know where we would be. Yeah, absolutely. What, what does recovery process physically look like for Kevin right now? You mean like what is, what is his schedule? Like what, yeah. is, what does he do? Okay, so... um you know, it changes. So mm-hmm. he has good days and bad days. You know, some days he, he seems really great and he gets a lot of movement in his right arm and, and he, and he feels like he's, you know, doing well. And then other days he's in a lot of pain and we have to tamp it down. Yeah. But on an average day, you know, he'll get up and, um, we start out and we use a Beamer blanket that was purchased from, um, friends of ours, uh, on behalf of him. And we start out with Beamer blanket therapy and we have a MagnaWave machine that we put on him also, and we do those several times a day. Right now, he is um, going into a hyperbaric chamber. I'm actually going in with him, and it's it's so weird. Wow. But um, I feel like I'm in a CAT scan machine every day. It's, yeah. it's it, so we have hyperbaric treatments because there's some there's some um, research that indicates that the hyperbarics will reduce the swelling in the cord, mm. and so we're we're giving that a shot. So we go into this oxygen tank and that we have 40 treatments of that. Um, we, we've been doing that together. We do that Monday through Friday. And then um, we do some physical therapy. We are about to start um, some pool physical therapy, which um, I have a family trust as well. And so we're going to be paying for that out of that, you know, which we got put together during the, during the hospital stay. And that's a whole nother story, but hmm. um so I'm going to be paying for that privately. So, so the hyperbaric, the hyperbaric and the, and the pool is, is on schedule for next week. So he'll go into a pool and we'll start to see how much movement he has because you know, you're weightless in the pool. Right. And I think a lot of, a lot of what we can't determine what's moving is because of the spasticity. That's sure. another, you know, like there's the spinal cord affects the 
the, you know, the transmission of messages from the brain to the body and everything below that point is fine. So the body is definitely, you know, we're trying to get these signals to come through and, you know, there's this spasticity that happens um, where, you know, maybe his foot gets touched and the, the foot says, Hey, there's a signal coming and it sends mm-hmm. it up and it bounces back. And then he gets like a lightning bolt through his body, like mm. of spasticity because it, it can't reach the, where the message is supposed to go. Right. So the spasticity, I think in a lot of ways, um, prevents us from knowing sort of what's, what's really happening in the body that he can control or not control and being in the water, hopefully the weightlessness, if he's not having that reaction of the spasticity, um, we'll be able to see a little bit more. There's probably going to be a neurologist listening to me going, she has no idea what she's talking about. (laughs) No, I was literally, as you were saying that I was, (laughs) no, literally as you were saying it, I was just thinking, I'm like, you probably know so much more about the body that you ever than you ever thought you would. Oh my God. You have no idea. My daughter was premature and I felt like by the time I left Hackensack, I mm-hmm. could have, I was like, I know everything I need to know about premature babies. Yeah. And and, yeah. and now like this, and, and it's my layman's understanding what's happening. And, you know, I'm also, my head's going a hundred miles an hour because I'm being interviewed, yeah. but yeah. you know, it's, it's sort of my understanding of what happens in the body. And so right. if we put them in the pool, my understanding of it is that with the weightlessness, we should be able to kind of help him see what's moving, what's not moving. And we're going to do that in a couple of weeks. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And he's getting some stretching, some physical therapy with that. We also have a bike that was purchased through the foundation, the Kevin mm-hmm. Babington foundation, which is, um, it's an electric stim bike electrodes go on the muscles and he, he, his legs are put into this bike. The electrodes get the muscles firing. And then as the muscles are firing, if he can contribute at all, the machine will let him. So, Mm. and there have been days where he has had some contribution, so he can't feel anything. But to me, at least there's, there's something there that says, okay, there he's, he's initiating some of this. Right. So I don't, I don't know what that means. You know, I yeah. don't, I don't know. And all we can do is just keep working with his body and trying to help him get through it, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, just like physically, I'm sure mentally and emotionally, there are good days and bad days also. What has that been like, not only for him, but for, for you and the kids? Well, I think I'm the worst of them, honestly, <laughs> uh, to hold my hand up and be brutally honest and yeah. say that, you know, and, and some of my closest friends tell me, that's normal because I'm like the primary caregiver and right. like I have all of the weight right now, all yeah. of it. Like I have the weight of, of the businesses and, you know, the weight of parenting the kids and, you know, the weight of, you know, making the right decisions for Kevin. And, mm-hmm. you know, I feel, I feel like it's a lot, you know, I feel like one of those donkeys with the packs on its back sometimes, yeah. but I guess uh, for him, I have to say, honestly, he is the most positive person and everyone that knows him that has been in his company since the accident are, they're all astounded by who he is as a person. And I have to say like, you know, I've known Kevin for like 30 years and Mm. he's always been a glass half full kind of guy. Right. And thank God, because he has a laugh, you know, like he, he'll tell jokes and sometimes he laughs so hard and, you know, he, (laughs) 
he didn't get his air because you know uh, he has this injury where it affected his breathing and, and that's yeah. the other thing we have a we have a little machine that also trains the breathing hyperbarics is helping with his air his air input with, in his lungs but mm-hmm. we also have this little machine that he blows into and it's it's supposed to be helping his lung capacity but okay. i mean he'll laugh sometimes and he'll fall over like we'll have him on the couch because yeah. he can't hold himself up and he'll be hysterical laughing he'll fall oh. over. So, <laughs> so it's just he just is really um a remarkable human being because he, I've never ever heard him have this long winded conversation about why me or, Mm -hmm. you know, terrible or, you know, he's made comments like, I never thought I'd wind up like this. He said that the other day and my daughter Gwyneth said, dad, you haven't wound up anywhere. You're just in the middle of a journey. And that's how we look at it. You know, like he's in the middle of a journey. I don't know where the journey will end. I Mm -hmm. don't know what the journey um, is supposed to mean, maybe it means nothing. Maybe this is just bad luck, but at the same time, we just live each day and his demeanor is, um, is one of a work ethic. And, Mm -hmm. and oh, so the other thing is we are supposed to be participating in a stem cell trial at the Mayo Clinic, which has been put on hold because of the, the virus outbreak. Right. And so we're still, you know, kind of in a, in a holding pattern waiting to hear from them on when that's going to happen. And that's, um, that's a lumbar puncture where they put stem cells into the actual spinal cord. Okay. And I'm a little bit frantic that it's taking this long because, um, I really feel like the scar is building in the, Mm. in the spinal cord. And, um, I wanted to get the stem cells in there sooner than later. Right. We had looked at some private options out of the country, but I'm concerned, you know, that's just, I just worry about being out of the country for any right. medical procedures. So sure. we're still waiting for this to happen. But, um, and he's, you know, anxiously waiting with that with open arms and every day he looks for some opportunity to build on his physical therapy. Wow. And the kid's mental state has been also remarkable. I mean, wow. I, I can't tell you how proud I am of them. Like Gwyneth went to finals right after her dad had a catastrophic spinal injury. Wow. She went off to finals with Val Renahan and I was devastated that I couldn't be there, but I, I could barely get myself up into the hospital every day. Mm-hmm. Never mind go off to equitation finals, right? Right. So she went off and did that and I mean, rode well. I mean, I mean yeah. it took me a long time to jump after, after now th- this week was the first week I showed a horse since the accident. Wow. And I feel like I've needed to return now because we have to keep the business going. So, sure. but, and my other daughter, Marielle, she's amazing. And she, they were all showing at the benefit horse shows when Kevin was in the hospital, they were showing horses at Princeton wow. to kind of keep the family flag flying that they were there to support their dad. They were having benefit horse shows and they went and they took, you know, a jumper in each class and they have just been nothing but positivity. And I, I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop with them. Right. You know, I keep waiting for, for the fallout, you know, for the hysteria and, mm-hmm you know, we've had talks and we've had moments where we've all been honest about how we feel or we've had bad days, but, but the general overview of these two girls are just like their dad. They just, they're Mm -hmm. forging ahead and they're like, we cannot be down. We have to move forward. We have to do the best that we can because, you know, what good is it going to do for everybody to sit here and start crying, you know, and and bemoaning like his lot in life or what could have been or what, Mm -hmm. what's lost. We don't even know yet. You know, we're just trying to get through it. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. So obviously I cannot understand um, or comprehend the amount of, you know, stress and an amount of weight on your shoulders and, and all of that during that time in the hospital. 
but you had a huge support system and, um, from, you know, whether it was people at the show or friends and family, tell me a little bit about, uh, more about that period of time for you. So as you know, I have a law background and as much as I think I was in shock when I was at the hospital, when I first arrived and people were there, it still seems surreal when I think about it. But the first thing I thought about when I saw Kevin and, and Nancy Wallace had said, you know, he's paralyzed. I thought, Oh my God, I'm going to have to claim bankruptcy. And it's not because we didn't have any money. It's because no matter what money you have, you know, that the income stream is stopped. And so I'm looking at this and my, and because I'm a smart person and I'm a fixer, the first thing I thought was, okay, how do we fix this? And then when I started to get my head around, you can't really fix this, at least you can't fix it right now. I started to think, okay, so what, what is life going to look like in the immediate future? It's going to look like no horse shows, no lessons. I'm not going to be able to even ride or teach because I'm going to have to be here at the hospital dealing with doctors and surgeries and whatever this means. I, I, I didn't even know if Kevin was going to live. Mm-hmm. So I knew that going to Duncrave or like going to Princeton or going to Lake Placid, that's not on the agenda right now. So right. for me, I thought, okay, how am I, how am I going to survive this? And I, I was looking at, you know, the assets, you know, like I have mortgages to pay on, you know, the mill and the house and, you know, other things that we had, car payments, you know, just the general running. Most horse trainers will tell you, you know, they're, they're two months ahead, you know, like, you know, and if you're not working for two months, then you're, then you're looking down a very dark hole. And so while I was standing there thinking, okay, I'm going to have to file bankruptcy immediately to just stay the assets and then buy myself some time and, and get myself organized. Column McWickian and Jess and Jess, my friend and my sister was on the phone and we were all talking about maybe we should, we need to start a GoFundMe. We had kind of thrown that around, but honestly, you're like, it was so crazy. Like here I'm at the ER and I'm, and I'm forced to think of finances with my husband laying on the table, you know, it was a horrible, horrible moment. And so, you know, we had, we had talked about it and oddly enough, um, a family friend who was a woman that had actually worked for Kevin and I as an assistant trainer for for when our business was really big for a while. Um, we could, we couldn't handle the overflow at the shows and stuff. And Kevin had asked Sissy Wicks to come. Um, and, and be an assistant trainer. And she would sort of come once in a while and help us out, meet us at shows, do lessons when we were traveling. She called me and she said, um, do I have your permission to start a GoFundMe? And I thought, what better person? You know, she's a trusted family friend and she knows everybody, you know, she's a judge and she's well-respected and of course you have my permission. So she started a, um, a Sissy Wicks Medical GoFund, GoFundMe fundraiser on Facebook. And I think her original amount was 25000 or something, right? She just kind of threw it out there. Mm-hmm. In the first day or so, she was upping the amounts and she could not keep up with the donations. Wow. And when we looked at the list, it was really uncanny. It, there were people from law school, friends of my sisters from high school, like people that friends of family members, people writing letters. And when you looked at how much money was raised, it was about a half a million dollars by several mm-hmm. months in. And and that money actually has been since placed into what's called the Babington Family Trust. And the concept was this money was to be used for Kevin's medical bills, along with keeping the house payment going. And, you right. know, 
getting the kids to the doctor because all of our life income stream came screeching to a halt. And that was the most important collection of money because it allowed life to continue. And it didn't come without its costs either, you know, because when people, then they expect that, you know, you know, most people don't care, but then there was this little pushback where, well, what is she doing with the money? You know, there Mm -hmm. was a little that, but I expected that. And we've been very, you know, we've been very open with what we've done. I mean, honestly, most of it is, is still there and it's paying the mortgage Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and, and, and I believe me, I'm guarding every dollar like prisoners, you know, we will pay privately for the pool that, that Kevin is going to be going in and we'll pay for the trust. But that is the only sum of money I have right now to operate out of. And it's, it saved our life, to be honest. Like I will, I will always be thankful to Sissy Wicks for, for, for calling me because, you know, she was not at the hospital and she could, she could sort of focus on that. She did do some, some driving towards it, which was very useful. And, um, and it was a great, it really saved our, our financial lives and it, it allowed us to keep the house payments going and, and all of those things. And, um, and then the foundation was a second thing that was put together by Kevin's friends because that's a 501c3. So people that are, are looking to put money out of a corporation or that are, they were looking for a, a tax incentive that was there. And I pray to God that that foundation will be something that will be there forever and that Mm -hmm. it will be something Kevin will someday not need and it will be there for the next person. That too has been a lifesaver. It's, it's paid for, um, a lot of, you know, like his medical bed and, and things that the insurance company won't pay, which you'd be shocked. Like they won't pay for a chair to take a shower in. Wow. So I had to buy a chair for him to shower in. Because what the insurance company says is, well, there's, you can get a sponge bath. I mean, can you imagine getting a sponge bath for the rest of your life? Like, so, so the foundation stepped up and paid for things like that along with hospital bills and, um, which I'm still actually in the middle of and, and I'm still reviewing and it, and I think the hospital bill without insurance coverage, the main bill before the insurance kicked in was something at NYU, like $678,000. Wow. So that, that was the, I remember I got that bill in the mail and I was like, Oh my gosh. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was thinking, how am I going to pay this? And I realized it said, this is not a bill. I said, okay, great. This is not a bill. This Ugh. is just what the bill will be until the insurance kicks in. Yeah. And it turns out that, um, that the insurance didn't kick in like I thought it would, you know, like there yeah. were a lot of that were done by doctors that did not accept his insurance. So, wow. so the fact, thank God for the foundation and, and the trust. Besides the foundation, I mean, there must have been, you know, a lot of things that you have learned through this process. And I think one being the idea of, um, you know, different medical insurance and, and riders and and kind of what that looks like. We always have our horses insured, but, um, I know there's, there's a company you're working with now, correct? Well, it's funny. This is just something that, that, that kind of came up a little bit naturally. Um, Mm -hmm. so I have to tell you that Kevin and I were always insurance minded, you know, and we had looked into getting him insured by, you know, we had, we have life insurance and, uh, but that life insurance doesn't pay anything for, for, you know, a casual, um, you know, a catastrophic injury or anything you have to die. Right. So it wasn't really helpful. And so, 
we had looked several years ago at getting him disability insurance. And unfortunately, I should have, I should have not taken that answer and I should have looked myself, but we were told that, you know, he was only insurable by Lloyd's of London and it was going to be between 40 and 60,000 a year Mm. um, because he was looked at as a jockey and, you know, jockeys Mm. that I actually believe that's a much, a much more dangerous sport. So, you know, because I delegated that to somebody else, I never followed up on that myself. That's Mm -hmm. a lesson learned. I should have, I should have gone out and looked for insurance myself and I just never did. And it turned out that there are actually some policies. And as recently as this week, I was approached by a man who owns a um, insurance company and um, called Athletes Risk Management. And he's based out of Florida. And he came to me and, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit cautious because a lot of people have come to me asking me for endorsements for things. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, no, that, you know, Kevin is not to, to be peddled, you know, like, but this is something that when he started to talk to me, he said, I really wish you and I had met much earlier because had you had this insurance, it would have paid out over a million dollars. Yeah. And I said, Oh, what insurance is this? And he started to tell me about this policy that, that, um, he offers through his, his, his company. And, you know, for a 40 year old rider with that doesn't smoke, I think the premium is like $125 a month. And wow. if they have a catastrophic injury or it's not even as bad as Kevin, like if they get cancer and they can't, they can't work or th- mm-hmm. there's a lot of, a lot of very, very useful and and really, I never looking at this policy the way he was describing it. It really didn't look like it was sort of like how can we how can we not pay you? Yeah, this policy is actually set up to try to pay you because these are yeah. hardworking people that are athletes, and you know that's sort of the market. I mean, it's not just for athletes, but through this company, you know, they're they're targeting riders because look at what happened to us. And right. when I tell you that, like when I showed up and there were two checks for $10,000 each from, and beautiful letters written saying that, you know, they were praying for us and mm-hmm. they knew what we were up against. That doesn't happen for everybody. Right. You know, this was a highly publicized accident. Sure. You know, this accident happened at the Hampton classic, which was televised and had a yeah. huge draw from the general public. I got checks from people that were at the Hampton classic for $25, you know, that, mm-hmm. that they saw it and they, they knew what he was up against and they just wanted to be part of helping. Right. Yep. You know, if somebody gets hurt at their farm, and and it's not in the public eye and they're they're not an olympian mm-hmm. you know who how how is that reaction going to happen for them right. it, it probably isn't right. i mean i think this is a great industry and i think yes people do rally around but the support that we had right off the bat it, i think it was so earth shattering mm-hmm. that this could happen to somebody with with kevin's resume that he could get hurt like this when when kids are jumping two six and missing and falling off i think it really resonated when um jeff the owner of the company came up to me and started talking to me about this i kind of looked at him a little bit with a fish eye because i thought all right what are you selling me here mm-hmm. what are you trying to yeah. he said to me diana i just want you to know i want to make a difference and he said to me and i really think if you look at this you'll realize that if kevin had had this you should help me talk to people about this. He said, because yeah. it, it's going to happen again. Wow. And that's the other reason for the Kevin Babington foundation. It's not, the foundation is not just for Kevin. I mean, I think the idea was to get it off the ground for Kevin and, and, and help me pay some medical bills and, and get the bike in place for him and stuff. But this will happen again. And mm-hmm. 
and it might not be an Olympian, you know, it might be a 17 year old kid, you know, and, and maybe, maybe they have a horse in their backyard and they're not in a barn and they don't have Mm -hmm. any means. Mm -hmm. So the Kevin Babington foundation, hopefully, hopefully Kevin won't need it at some point. I don't know that that will happen, but I'm praying, but in the event that he doesn't need it, I, I hope that I'm going to also promote that that keeps going and is in place for the next person. Right. But this particular insurance policy that's, that's now available through, I think it's the national life group. It looks like a good one. I mean, the premiums are low and, and it looks like, you know, if you can, if you have an injury and you can't dress yourself or feed yourself, Mm -hmm. there's a payout. So like it, it really doesn't try to hold you up. And if anybody that's listening to this wants more information on it, I'm happy to pass you just along so that you can learn about it because I am telling you, I'm here to tell you that if I had had this in place, Mm -hmm. we would not have been looking down this dark abyss. Like how the hell am I going to keep, you know, how am I going to keep the lights on? Yeah. And I'm still wondering that, you know, because now mm-hmm. we've got a pandemic and, right. you know, we're, we're trying to teach lessons We're you know, I'm trying to go to shows with clients, but right. there are no shows really to go to that much. And, you know, it's, it's a different world we're living in. So absolutely, we were actually lucky that this happened at a time before the economy fell through and, mm-hmm. um, and, and people couldn't go out and, and, and there, and fundraisers could happen. So, you know, if, if there's a pandemic and fundraisers can't happen, this life insurance policy is still going to be there and, right. and not life insurance, but disability policy. So, you know, I actually am still, I'm still looking at it, but at first glance, I would get behind this and, and just like I want to get behind vests. I think that mm-hmm. that vests should not be looked at as something that only bad riders wear. I think, right. I think you should wear a vest. I don't have one yet because I haven't even been able to get one and they're also super expensive. Yeah. I, you know, the stores closed about the time, you know, that I was starting to look to, to get riding again and mm-hmm. I haven't been out to get one. You know, I don't really go out unless I have to. And, um, but I will, I will wear a vest as soon as I can. Yeah. And because I actually think a vest that had a cervical protection it might not have saved everything, but it would have definitely made a difference in how his neck hyperextended. Mm-hmm. I mean, he literally did a somersault on his Adam's apple, you know, mm-hmm. like, so, and, you know, he didn't break his neck. He just has this contusion of the spinal cord. It was just a terrible right. bruise. Right. Yeah. Yep. So my clients ride in vests when they are at home. And then, um, the one who just started the jumpers has the jacket that inflates mm-hmm. as well. And, mm-hmm. um, I'm so thankful that it is becoming more accepted and, and you see it more and more often mm-hmm. because it really, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it's a no brainer. Like why wouldn't you remember back and I'm old enough to remember when everybody wore cardboard hunt caps, you know, yep. like they're, yeah. they're like these, yeah. you know, they'd fall off and they'd sound hollow when they right. get around without your head. Right. And so, and I remember when they came out, GPA came out with this helmet and it looked like something from space and yes. everybody was like, I'm not wearing that. I'm not wearing that. Mm-hmm. Well now, now look around and, and if you had an old hunt, helmet on uh, like an old hunt cap on people would think you you had six heads they, they, what are yeah. you wearing yeah. so it just has to kind of get to the point where it becomes just part of your like you're like your boots you know you put it on you put on a vest you know and and if you don't want to put one on that's fine but I don't see why you wouldn't I mean mm-hmm. it is an inherently dangerous sport and mm-hmm. if anybody knows that I do you know I'm looking at my junior my junior daughters and I said to them this is an opportunity for for you guys to wear this and make this okay for junior riders but dealing right. with juniors you know they don't want to look weird riding in the equitation ring you know um they don't want to be the first one either and they're not afraid that's the other mm-hmm. thing they're like mom we're not afraid and i said i'm afraid because i know that as well as you ride 
this can happen. Right. So, you know, I feel like we are coming to the point now where you see some of the professionals wearing them and yep. it doesn't look like, oh, that's an old lady that, that doesn't ride yes. well, so she yeah. needs protection. Yeah. I think when people see you in a vest, the stigma is gone. Mm-hmm. Now I wish it would get to the point where people would look at it and be like, why is that person not wearing a vest? I, I yes. just wish it would get there. I don't know that right. it ever will, right. but it would be my, I would hope that that will happen because mm-hmm. I'm living, I'm living the alternative when something goes very wrong. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, well, Diana, thank you so much for taking the time out of your obviously busy schedule. Um, I really <laughs> appreciate it and giving us some insight on your life and Kevin's life and, and how you guys are doing. And, um, as you're kind of looking forward into the, this new chapter, I really, I just wish you all the best. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here and, um, and thank you everything. And thank you to everyone actually, who's been there for our family and for Kevin. I don't know any other venue that would be as appropriate as a podcast. Believe me, everything that everybody has done has not been taken for granted for a moment. Like I, I think I will go to my grave thinking how, how fortunate we've really been. Yeah. Exactly. Amazing. Um, where can they, where can people who are listening find more information about the foundation or or ways if they're looking to help or, or get more information about Kevin? Well, the foundation, um, is, uh, there's a Facebook page and, um, you know, if you, if you know, John Brandon and Missy Clark, um, from North run, they, their bookkeeper is the uh, Debbie Wells is the person that actually runs the financial end. Great. So if you can reach out to the foundation on the Facebook page and send them a message, or if you know, John Brandon or Missy, um, or any of the foundation members like Marty Hagen's or, you know, like if you happen to know, if not, I think the best place to go would be the Facebook page and, and send a message. Perfect. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Diana. Thank you too. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.